Welcome listeners to the 23rd episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt. With me as always are my wonderful co-hosts, the powerful wizard Robinson Sien and the powerful wizard Christopher Wikström. The warmest of welcome to you, dear listeners. Hello, friends. Hello, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Stockholm Legacy Report can be found every week on the Top Tech app. In today's episode, we will hear the latest Thursday Paper Legacy Report from our podcast chosen, Robin. Then, as this is the week of the Swedish Legacy Nationals, we will discuss our methods for tournament preparation. As we know, Paper Legacy is live in Stockholm every Thursday. Robin, you had a chance to represent the podcast last week as me and Christopher were tied up in other matters. How did you fare? I fare well. <laughs> That's how you say it. Fare well. If, if, uh, if last Thursday was a, like a lesson for me, this was much uh, better for the coming championship. I played four matches. I went three and one and I felt quite confident about the deck didn't really make any large mistakes, I think. Felt uh, confident about the Mulligan decision, decisions and uh, my final tunings that I will do uh, on the 75. So I'll go through the, the matches uh, and sp- speak a little bit about what happened. So first opponent was uh, playing Yorion Espervile. And we had also uh, done some practice matches before the event started. And we also did some practice matches today. So I've played quite a lot against Yorion Espervile. But this particular match went like this. Game one, I keep punishing fire and Valkut exploration and just snowball. And the game two, he has boarded in Rest in Peace, which he lands. Strand's loam that is in my hand, and the punish, Punishing Fire becomes one-time uses only. But I have an exploration and can go up to zombies quite quick. And I also get to starve him on mana a little bit. So two rather quick games. And I think that's like that deck is interesting because he has a lot of hate bears. He plays the, the full plays at the meddling mage, of course. He have uh, Skyclave Apparition to, to kill my exploration or Valakut explorations. And he also plays uh, Prismatic Ending from the board, which supplements like the removal suit really well. And of course, Force of Will, Force of Negation to sort of save his, uh, his hate pieces from my removal. And so on. But I think that just my end game plan of uh, of making zombies with Field of the Dead is he has real trouble handling that. I think he boarded in his plague engineers to name zombie to to have a, a fighting chance against a horde of zombie. But I I feel really confident in that matchup and and all of my testing I don't think I have dropped the game. So I boarded out two of the depths because that plan is not the best. The Ancient Tomb, I don't need speed. The Bog, he doesn't have a graveyard interaction at all. And one of the Wastelands, because he, he fetches for his basics and like three fetchland, uh, Wastelands plus, plus Richard and Port is quite enough. So I have one Torpor Orb in the board, and that is a really nice card against coming to play effect dot deck. And then I boarded in Blasts and at this particular time, I bought it in Endurance, but I think that maybe Force of Vigor is better. I didn't know he was on the Rest in Peace plan. It's a, it's a give and take. He was talking about that he wanted to ride a Jailer to victory, to get card advantage through Jailer. And if that is the plan, if that's a successful plan, 
endure and scan, like steal the monarch. So that's a cool thing. On to the next game. Again, Yorion is revealed and I play against Death and Taxes. In game one, he moves to five and I keep him off mana. And again, Valakut Exploration Snowball. I board quite similarly out with two Depths, uh, with a Tomb, with a Bog, and one Wasteland. And in with a Torpor Orb, two Force of Vigor, and two Endurance. And game two, he stumbles on mana. I get to port him, waste him. He lands a Stoneforge, gets a Caldra, but I have a Maze that like, keeps the Caldra in check. And then just prison him out, and he scoops eventually. On to game three. I face sort of the one of the end game bosses at our LGS on Doomsday. In game one, I know that I don't really have anything in the deck that can interact with him, so I keep port and a possible turn four Merit Lage. And I realize that he is a little bit stabbed on mana, and I need to keep porting him because he can't really play anything if I do that. So my Merit Lage is uh, delayed, and I, I don't dare to take a pause from porting him. So I have a turn six Merit Lage instead. On the final turn, he, he finds a fetch and goes off with with a pile, and I can't do anything about it. So that's how game one usually will end, I guess. Like, even if I have a, a, a sort of a fighting chance, it's really a, a uphill battle. So I have a quite a good boarding plan here. I can take out the Valakut Explorations, I don't need a grinding power. I can take out Punching Fire. I might save one or two because its damage after uh, after Doomsday is uh, resolved. Blaststone doesn't do anything. Caracas doesn't do anything. Maze of It. Tabernacle doesn't do anything. So in comes my Spheres, Endurances, Riddle Metal Blasts, and Shokes, and the Torpor Orb. So that's 12 card in total. So on to game two, I keep a hand with a Shoke. Double red elemental blast and a sphere and and I think a groove and a tiger. Two red sources. So that's a great hand. And uh, we draw go in the beginning, so I get to play my sphere with red elemental blast up. And he forces, I blast, and he forces again. So he's four cards down from that interaction. Next turn he can go for it, and I am ready to choke him out when he passes the turn with Red Elemental Blast up. But then I top deck the Torpor Orb and just slams it. And his final cards in hand is, is a Force, but I can blast it and he just scoops. He doesn't have any answer to Torpor Orb. And in game three, I keep a hand, which I'm not really sure if I should keep it. But it's, it's a Waste land. It's a Dark Depth. It's a Red Elemental Blast, a Taiga, and a Loam for Wasteland Recursion. So my re only real interaction here is the Red Elemental Blast. But, I mean, Wasteland uh, and Loam can do quite a lot. He starts with fetching a basic swamp and thought seizes my blast. And Whoops. Like, that's really rough. <laughs> What's your game plan now? <laughs> well, the game plan is the top deck, of course. So we both play lands. He plays one fetch and then another fetch. And I don't have any use for my Wasteland. He hardcasts his Doomsday off to Underground Seas and his Swamp, and he plays out a Lion's Eye Diamond from the hand, then passes. So I top deck a Sphere of Resistance, which I play, and he thinks for quite a while and then hesitantly packed it. Packs it. So in his next turn, he have to sacrifice the Lion's Eye Diamond to pay for the Pact, right? Right, that seems like a good play for you. Yeah, a good play for me because he have to use two of his mana uh, as well to, to pay for the pact. And uh, he can't go through all of the things that he wants to do. And in the next turn, 
I can waste one of his underground seas and then loam it back and waste the other ground other underground sea. And from there he scoops. So I guess maybe he could have built a pile that would have solved this equation, but he didn't have enough mana sources to place Tassa, I guess. So lucky me, I win against Doomsday and is on to the final boss on Delver. So hang on just a second. So I mean, I'm feeling since you brought in 12 cards uh, from your sideboard uh, after game one, you are sort of looking at not being very successful in game one against Doomsday, but being successful in games two and three. I mean, it seemed that sort of course you how you you sort of lucked out a bit on your top decks, but then again, you put yourself in a position in which you were able to make these top decks. Would you say that you are happy with this 12-card sideboard plan against Doomsday? Absolutely. I mean, it's. I, I think the Force of Vigor, that's the only card I don't bring in. Uh, I guess you can make a case for like trying to snag a, a Lions of Diamond or something like that. <laughs> Christopher shakes his head. I, I agree. I agree. But but you need you need the force of vigors in the, in the board and all of the other cards are relevant in the matchup. That's how the sideboard is built. Yeah, I, I actually think that your your sideboard plan is is very good in this matchup. Um, like I've mostly played from the other side, and I do think I even though like you bring in like twelve cards, I do think that it's still a good matchup for Doomsday, but. If the avenues of attack from the land side is not only limited to, you know, mana denial, if we're suddenly looking at, you know, sphere resistances, which is very common, but then, you know, torpor orbs and endurances, um, there are so many, like, new angles that you have to play around. And, you know, if you want to play around cards like Endurance or Red Elemental Blast in this deck, it's not exactly like you're like very keen to bringing in defense grid or something like that if you have those in the sideboard you're probably just jamming and hoping that your counter spells are gonna get you there so i really i really like that uh, there are some some more requirements for the doomsday to go off uh, securely and time is not what you want to give lands especially if you're playing you know a lot of underground seas you know they have a one-time use a lot of time so I, I really enjoy it like i think it's a very good sideboard plan yeah it, it felt like uh, after dedicating so much of the board to cards that are viable in the matchup i feel like the matchup is really fun to play it has a lot of play to it so to say he has to navigate around both instant effects with endurance and permanent hate pieces and there's always the chance of the Red Elemental Blast, both on his counter magic and on the Thassa itself. So, yeah, it, it felt quite cool. And, of course, Wasteland is hell of a card. Richard and Port is hell of a card. You can go quite a long way with just Mana Denial in that matchup. But, of course, with Rituals and Petals, it's not a safe route as well. You need other interactions. But it all adds up to sort of a, a, a decent package against Doomsday. And it was... All all three games were, were great magic, in my opinion. So, until the final round, I'll play against Delver. And uh, in game one, I, I test the waters with a, with some of my spells, and I realize he cannot possibly have a counter magic, uh, hard counter magic in his hand. So I just jam all the stuff, exploration, loam, and just start to snowball. And uh, he packs it up quite early. He, he doesn't really get the the threat going soon enough and 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 i get to 
make a lot of land drops and port him and he doesn't find a land and so quite quite an easy game one but i i, I should say that i did one the die roll which is really important here so in game two he starts with a ragavan it doesn't really get him any card advantage from my deck, but he gets a mana advantage from it, and that's really important against lands. I play my exploration around days, so I'm a little bit slow out of the water, so to say. And uh, I get to st stabilize with mazes towards the end, but he has boarded in Price of Progress, and that kills me. <laughs> so onto game three. Uh, he surgicals my loam and uh, wastes my taiga, so I'm, uh, I don't have any green source. And he beats me with his one drops, and I am just going up to four mana to play my, uh, my blast zone and remove all of his threats. Uh, so he swings, I sacrifices the blast zone, and he can, again, Price of Progress for the last six damage. So uh, he has read a room, there's a lot of lands, players, and some of them are very good. I'm not talking about me. Price of Progress is hell of a card against lands. I don't really know how to deal with it. Maybe you can play Glacial Chasm, but it's like a one-time use to counter it once. And then you, I mean, of course there are things you can do with a Glacial Chasm in the long run, but that's sort of a, a magical Christmas land, so... That felt quite uphill, I must say, but I don't expect all Delver players to have Price of Progress in the board. At least I hope not. <laughs> Man, that is sick. Like, last time I got Price, like, popped real bad was uh, at a Wednesday tournament around two or three years ago. I was playing Stacks, and uh, that deck played zero basics. So I was just on, you know, colorless Stacks. And I get into the situation where I... I've used Ancient Tomb around two or three times, and uh, my opponent has zero creatures in play and has two fetches, and then like plays another one, cracks all of them. Which like I'm thinking, you know, what what spell, what single spell is gonna get you out of this problem? And then they price of progress me for 18. Oh, that's disgusting. It was it was mega lethal. Like I could have almost not used. <laughs> <laughs> like ancient tomb at all. Overkill. Overkill. So so did he price of progress with all the fetches on the stack? Like like he had sacrificed them and not gotten the the lands into play. Was that the play? No 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 no. Like my opponent my opponent uh, like this was under a Trinisphere, you know, I had Crucible Wasteland lock up and you know, just sitting there I didn't have a port or anything, so I was just sitting there, you know, waiting to find my Wincon, which is uh, a metalworker <laughs> in that deck. But yeah, he find he found the Price of Progress, which just did did everything. So yeah, just fetch fetch all the basics, fetch a duel. It doesn't matter. Like this is a, a ten drills for Storm Nine. <laughs> I mean, I think doesn't really Price of Progress look good right now. If we look at sort of, I mean, it's difficult to discern what is actually the metagame uh, going to be this weekend at the Nationals. But if one looks at other metagames, sort of going through top eights of challenges and stuff, I know, again, I mean, this is uh, difficult to sort of use as a comparison, but I am not seeing a lot of decks that are using a lot of basic lands. I think sort of the exception being sort of one of the latest on Magic Online challenges that had like this mono black stompy helm deck and a sort of mono black curse deck they both played like seven copies of swamp but other than that decks are just not playing basics at the moment the way that i see it so i'm thinking price of progress is looking you know generally quite good right now except of course you have death and taxes but then again 
that in taxes play a lot of non-planes as well. Well, I have I have my own take on that, and I actually think that the price of progress is probably only good in a meta when you know that you're gonna get you know land a lance player really bad because with all of the fire printings, you know, with we're looking at cards like Uro and very efficient threats, that card might have a too bad you know rate for the mana and damage that it does compared to just playing a Ragavan. Or, uh, you know, if, if your opponent is playing, you know, some sort of blue-green blue, blue green X shell, like, cards like Uro is just gonna... Even if it puts another land into play, they're still up one <laughs> in that Price of Progress, uh, you know, uh, trade-off. So I just think that Price of Progress is one of those cards that when you bring them in, it's because your deck has a problem against a specific thing. And bringing them in against something like lands is really nice. Uh, but I think against the meta, it's it's quite rough. Like you said, death and taxes would just, you know, they do play, you know, Wastelands, Caracas, and Ports and stuff like that. But I would be really happy if I was on death and taxes and my opponent uh, price of progress me. As a death and taxes player who has been price of progress sometimes, I would say that um, it can be, can be rough. But I have some thoughts about the deck uh, before moving on to another topic. And um, my Ursa Sagas were quite bad all of the evening. I don't have any, I don't have enough artifacts, I should say. And I feel like the lands lists uh, have sort of diverged into two separate groups, where one goes heavily onto Saga and a little larger package, and maybe also plays Crucible, and maybe also plays some of the Sphere of Resistance in the main deck. And that kind of deck is much better at uh, making large constructs. My constructs were 1-1s and 2-2s <laughs> most of the time, because I don't really support the Saga that well. But I should also say that it's a wasteland uh, beacon, so to say. So maybe I shouldn't evaluate them like that. But I feel like I am into a Valkyrie exploration build. With that build, I think that Field of the Dead is my main win con for the long game. So I've been... I've been testing lately now, since uh, I played last Thursday, to remove the two Sagas which I was playing and the two, uh, two uh, tutor targets that I was playing. And I replaced those with my third mace for the Delver matchup, my, uh, my third port for the combo matchups, a second Field of the Dead for the control matchup, and then just getting a little bit better mana base, I've been adding the fourth grow to get green and red mana. So, and th- uh, that feels, in my testing, it feels really good at least. Oh, cool. I mean, speaking of, uh, you know, Ursa's Saga talk back again, <laughs> it seems as if Death and Taxes is now currently uh, adapting uh, a number of uh, Ursa's Saga copies. I mean, I guess that was just a matter of time because it seemed like such an interesting card in, in a deck where you can have a number of relevant uh, one-drop artifacts, uh, especially if you play the 80-card version, you might have a difficulty finding your other vials, but they really help in the late game, as we discussed previously on the cast and why you're so good, etc. I haven't tried it out myself, but it is interesting how this card just keeps getting tried out and tested, and regardless of what you're saying right now, but it seems to have also success in so many different shells. Like, this card is bonkers as some people predicted six months ago that it would be uh, i i think it's interesting soon it's going to be in i don't know reanimator and infect i guess 
But I really like it in Death and Taxes. I mean, if you have the Vile, then you need a Mana Sink, and that's a great Mana Sink. And if you don't have the Vile, it fetches you the Vile. So, I like it. Yeah, I, I actually really enjoy it. I see so many decks play it, you know, everything from artifact decks, um, mainly blue blue ones with, you know, the 8 cast or 8 fought or whatever you uh, want to call that deck. With everything from those kinds of decks to, you know, when we're talking about death and taxes, there, there's been an influx in equipments that are legacy playable. And if the opponents are going to bring in sweepers, make sweepers really awkward. I mean, that card is, uh, like, the Ursa Saga is just such a sweet card against sweepers. It's one of those cards that can make the opponent really go, oh no, kind of like the Ink Moth Nexus feeling of, I can't decay this thing right now, and I really need to. I can't prismatic ending this problem. So I really like it. I think it's a, a great addition to Legacy, actually. truly wonderfully played robin good on you now on to the theme of uh, the podcast today in a way how we are preparing for paper legacy tournaments and of course uh, more importantly how we are looking at this weekend's nationals of paper legacy um christopher we know that um prepared preparations is a topic near and dear to your heart so why don't you kick us off tell us how you execute your ponder process all right so yeah i've been preparing quite a bit recently not only for the legacy nationals in sweden but uh, yeah last week i couldn't play (laughs) at the lgs due to me preparing for the industrial management exam that i had Uh, (laughs) so i've been preparing a lot however if we're gonna dive into this you know tournament prep is one of my absolute favorite things to do and i put way too much time and thought into it sometimes it's it's not even you know productive thought and uh, productive time it's just me tinkering with really stupid cards uh, an ex- like an example of this was when i was preparing for a small tournament like the playoffs that we have in stockholm i actually tried in bug food chain like can i put in glissa the traitor in in the main deck of this and go really weird and wonky with my walking ballistas and make this like a machine gun. It was absolutely terrible. And I I tried so many iterations of it, but you know, sometimes you just gotta get get a good feeling for the vibe and get into it and try some wacky things. But now we're looking at a, a big tournament. We're looking at the Swedish nationals. And what does the meta look like? Well, I would say that it was extremely heavy blue when Modern Horizons 2 was released, and it has slowly turned less blue in my opinion, with decks like Lands, Moonstompy, and Reanimator making more and more appearances alongside with Death and Taxes. These are the type of decks that really wants to beat up on the efficient Brainstorm, Ponder, Days, Force of Will, Ragavan. You know the shell. You've, you've played against it a lot of times. So, 
my takeaway from this is that it's quite hard to pinpoint and predict exactly what the metagame will look like during the Swedish Nationals. I'm predicting, you know, that Blue-Red X, Ragavan X, will still be really good in this meta. So I think it's crucial to have a very strong neutral against these decks. What I mean about that is, if your decks are both functioning kind of what they should be doing, they should not have an easy time against you. It should not, it should not be that you are always weak to days, and it should also be that you kind of have to struggle a bit to stabilize or struggle a bit to get through. So your neutral should be pretty good against, against these decks. And if possible, have a really good sideboard plan against the Ragavan decks. And that's, that's like my first point. And then I really like to enjoy, you know, is the meta that we're looking at set in a kind of stone, paper, scissors structure? Or are there, you know, those asshole kids on the playground that goes, fire beats everything? Right now, it's kind of like a stone, paper, scissors meta, but it's kind of due to the fire beats everything kid who are the blue red delver and sagavan players and i think that's really interesting to take a like a closer look at where in the chain of rock paper scissors do we want to put ourselves and how do we fare against what we think will be the largest majority in the room so right now uh, you know if if the sagavan decks are the rock like what a, what what would you pick as the paper and what are you scared against playing against as the paper who are your scissors my analysis from this is that i really do think that there are a lot of really strong non blue decks that have a really good game right now i'm looking especially at moonstompy that I think is absolutely phenomenal in this metagame. And that's also due to Lance being really good. With Moonstompy having a good game against both, according to me, both Delver players, maybe Bant players. Don't don't quote me on that one. Uh, but Lance, yeah, I, I actually think it's one of the decks to beat going into the Swedish Nationals. And I also believe that fast, efficient decks like reanimator that are not susceptible or like you know weak to red elemental blasts will also be quite good in this meta so that's my like meta analysis um so now we're we've just touched on the meta do you do you have any opinions about this do we have another half an hour before you (laughs) (laughs) no um two things Firstly, my impulse is to quote uh, Grima Wormtongue and, and be all, you know, how can fire undo stone? <laughs> but perhaps fire can undo stone because Sagavan Ragavan is so explosive. Boom, boom. But yeah, um, I think you make a lot of valid points. I mean, of course, as you say, the, the metagame is extremely hard to predict because you have not a lot of paper tournaments to look at uh, at all since... Uh, the Modern Horizons 2 metagame set itself, in Sweden I mean. And secondly, you have the combination of some people are really going to want to bring their A game. And if you want to bring the A game, you can just, just bring anything with Ragavan in it or Doomsday. 
and that and that's going to be valid a game for for many people but then again you have all these fans of paper legacy that are not going to bring an objective a game they're going to bring their game and perhaps tweak their sideboards a bit so you also have to be prepared to meet sort of any number of 12 post players at this tournament as well so my question back to you is how do you factor that in or do you not factor that in because it's i guess sort of difficult to prepare for any number of quote-unquote rogue decks that you are likely to meet in the first at least five rounds of this tournament yeah i think that's kind of my my tournament prep uh, philosophy for going into to bigger tournaments is that your your main objective is to have a strong quote-unquote neutral against the best decks you shouldn't just roll over and lose and this might cost you to have less less good game against decks like cloudpost if you're if you're aiming to beat the really efficient uh, blue red x decks chances are your deck might not be really good against a turn one cloudpost turn two cloudpost kind of kind of deck so I, I do think that yeah you there there will be people who will play their pet decks or have gone on a deep level of you know People are going to beat Ragavan decks, so I'm going to bring this deck, and it's just going to crush all weekend. Those are really hard to predict, and that's where the having a balanced neutral is really important. You know, how do you... Like, your deck is still built to win legacy games. How does it do that, even if you're playing against something you're not prepared for? Like, if you're playing against Cloudpost, how much does it change between you playing against that deck and you playing against Blue-Red Delver, you still have to get them dead somehow. And, <clears throat> you know, in the Grixis control era, when this situation came up, it was a much bigger problem because that deck was really bad at putting on a clock. And uh, I do think that the threats in Legacy now are so efficient that the same type of problem might not be a thing. I think the the neutrals overall are quite stronger, which is is kind of interesting in a sense because it means that decks get more good at beating the things they're not tuned against, but also the turns, the the relative turns in Legacy also decrease uh, in a lot of games. I really agree with that. If you think about the premier control deck that used to play Countertop, for instance, which was terrible against rogue decks, but really good against the meta decks. Now you have Uro. Like, it's it's a three-turn clock or something like that. I mean, it, it can win games. So, like, the card quality and, and, and uh, maybe even more so, like, the proactiveness of the cards that control decks are playing now are making them much better against the the weirder decks that you're not uh, prepared for. One thing that I, that uh, that I was thinking about when you were talking Christopher is that like so when when you face some of the weirder decks sometimes you can just rely on your sort of legacy experience and uh, ha- having played a lot of magic and uh, perhaps being a better player than your opponent and just like like they they are not used to that matchup either maybe because you are playing 
like a deck that they, they haven't faced a lot. So so in, in that case, it's a little bit of a heads, head-to-head, so to say, who can figure out what to do in this matchup better. But when it comes to the meta decks, they have probably... Like they are probably quite proficient at what they're doing, and uh, some of the best players are probably drawn towards what may be seen as the tier zero deck or tier one deck. So I I would do exactly what you said, and I would prep my deck to beat the Delver deck, and I would prep my my beat to my deck to beat Death and Taxes because I think I think that deck will also be quite represented in uh, in a natural championship. And then, like ha- having a, a good plan for a few other decks, and then just the other decks, it, it will it will be what it is. I will just hope that I figure out how to deal with that, those decks. <laughs> to go full circle on the Grimma Wormtongue quotes, you play against that person who's the only player of a certain deck in the room, and you start laughing, and they're like, "Leave me alone!" And you go, "But you are alone." <laughs> <laughs> anyways so moving on the next thing that i i so we have deck selection of course and in this in this meta uh, that we're in now i'm not looking at the deck that necessarily eats delver up and this is kind of weird due to what i said before but i'm looking at decks that have us have an okay neutral against it but is quite strong against the other decks. Uh, we've talked about Stompy and uh, and Lance as very strong contenders in this metagame. So for me, going into the Swedish Nationals, I do think that uh, Aluren is a really good pick, just because the deck has a kind of good neutral against the Ragavan Days decks. But what what makes the deck really strong against the rest of the meta. Maybe not fast combo, as I've expressed before. It's always a very stressful experience. But against the other decks is that due to bumping it up to 80 cards and having Yorion, you have an extremely nasty late game presence uh, that might hit the table if you need to draw a lot of cards or just, you know, having a combo kill coming out of quote-unquote nowhere if you're playing 80 cards and casting abundant growths i think the jig is up but the deck is extremely solid against a lot of decks and although i do think that you know having diluted your deck a bit i do think that it actually has decent game against the top picks but extremely good games against the decks that beats those decks and they will be my target to beat at the legacy nationals in in Boros. So how will other people sideboard against your deck and what are your weaknesses? But also, you know, it's really important to look at what advantages does your deck have and how do you leverage this information or these advantages? And one of the really fun things against, like looking at just the Yorian build of Aluren, one of the biggest advantages is that this deck is actually not really that reliant on the combo because it can draw an obscene amount of cards and it also has a lot of flex spots and tutors both in recruit of the guard and living wishes which can be really solid against a, a, a really big chunk of the meta maybe you know getting a plague engineer isn't as fun as it used to be if you're playing against death and taxes 
but it still is if you're playing against elves and it's still a really good time if you're playing against a stompy deck and you're feeling really stressed out and you need to you know kill a lot of their goblins or something like that there are a lot of avenues of play uh, with this deck and i think that it packs a lot of advantages and that its biggest biggest advantage is people focusing too much on how do i prevent my opponent from comboing while in a lot of games i tend to go how do i make my death deck less combo centric and i think if i'm not playing against a really fast combo deck i will go in a really grindy route and that's one of the really quote-unquote unfair advantages that Yorion brings that that is making me lean really heavily into this this deck for the tournament yeah one thing uh, that i was thinking about that is also like a advantage of of uh, your of uh, aluran i mean you've been talking about like the non-combo side how how strong that can be and maybe when there's a, a combo present it's even stronger but also some of the decks that you cannot grind out uh, cloud post for instance having that sort of combo um, and like being a sort of a, a band control deck but with that sort of I win bottom is so really strong against that sort of deck that do some sort of shenanigans that you just can't beat. Just having a I, w- I win bottom is really strong. Yeah, uh, I, I completely agree. Like uh, last week when I talked about uh, the Nick fit, uh, looking at the board states, I was not in the lead, but I still killed my opponent one turn later. When you have, you know, a clear sideboard plan against the 10 most common decks in the meta, that's Kind of like when I think uh, you're starting to reach the peak of your preparations. You know, besides, you know, water, food, uh, have I changed my sleeves uh, before the tournament? And, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of logistical things that you can prepare before a tournament like this. Like, are you efficient with a deck? Do you play it fast? Um, are you used to shuffling an 80-card deck? You know, all kinds of small things that you can really prepare for so that it doesn't become a problem in the uh, actual tournament and so i would say find a good sideboard idea like a, create your own sideboard plan for the like 10 most popular decks in the meta that you predict doesn't have to be 10 but it's it can be really good and make sure that your deck of choice feels good you like playing the deck uh, or if you if you hate the deck Make sure that it makes it worth it by being extremely strong and doing something extremely ridiculous that kind of makes up for it not being a deck you enjoy. And, you know, finally, last things off, do do try to shave off those, you know, uh, small time losses that you get from not being proficient or efficient with a deck. You do have time to prepare, uh, change your sleeves and get ready for some good legacy. going to go into my ideas of tournament prep but uh, i have nothing to add christopher covered most of it no uh 
I mean, to be serious, if if Christopher is heavily into ponder as a principle for his tournament preparations, I am more of a careful study kind of guy. I go back to what I know, what I've learned, what I've encountered, rather than trying to maximize my metagaming. And this is not to say that I just use whatever Netex sideboard is out there for the last week's play that's attached to the deck choice of my choosing but it's it's sort of um, i mean to me paper legacy is a lot about dexterity like is this deck feeling good to shuffle right now uh, and also i mean i do enjoy winning the times that i do it doesn't happen that often but you know when it happens it's fun what has worked out for me previously usually sits well in my heart i, I guess i'm a very emotional player that way not sort of that i I hope I do not convey too many negative emotions at the play table, but I play. I want to play things that resonate with me. I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm the lore guy on this podcast as well. I want things to feel. Uh, I want the fantasy, I guess. So, my process will be. I mean, trying to take into account sort of the wise words of powerful wizard Christopher Wikström. Uh, you should all heed them because uh, those are wise words. But also sort of what sits well with me? Where is my heart right now? Start from there. And then I will tweak that deck plan according to according to the philosophy of Christopher. And then that's what I'm going to enter in the tournament uh, at the end, I think. Uh, Robin, what does your process look like? Is it uh, ponder? Is it careful study? Or is it uh, something else? Predict. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I want to draw two and keep them both. <laughs> Maybe expressive iteration. That's the best process. That's the new predict. The new predict, the new dig through time. The process is, of course, like sort of predicting the metagame, of course. What do you think, what do you think that you're going to face? And, and like one part of that is looking at the stats from MTG Top 8 or MTG Goldfish. And one is just like guessing, you know, People will bring death and taxes, like those old truths, sort of, that you can apply to a big paper tournament. And that you will also face a little bit of burn and whatnot. And then just, like, having your sideboard plan planned out, sort of. Don't forget a plan of what to bring out from your deck, not only what to bring in. I mean, I think that Christopher has, has covered it. It's, it's not so much to add, but I, I like to tinker with the sideboard and, 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 and maybe also think about the 75 as a whole. I, I'm, I haven't done that in this particular list that I'm working on now, but I'm not a complete stranger to swapping some of the cards. I could have the Endurances in the main, for instance, and the Velocute Explorations in the board, if I think that would be a better deck to present to an unknown opponent. So having that sort of like tuning process where, where you think about the, the 75 as a whole is, is something that I spend a lot of time on. But otherwise, then that just like playing, thinking, and of course, getting all your things together, the sleeves, the dice, all the stuff, so you are prepared for the tournament. Any other last minute tips from uh, you, Christopher? No, not really. I think I think we've all, you know, expressed our thoughts and opinions about this. I have one question to Victor and his fantasy heart. Who would you ride with, Gmork or Falcor? So for anyone not born in the 1980s and not having seen the never-ending story, Gumork is 
sort of the werewolf villain of, of the movie and Falcor is the white dragon creature in this in this film our main antagonist rides on Falcor's back etc etc and this question is put to me because I like to play Gristlebrand and like to play the taxes and these are two very black and white uh, type of creatures I mean Falcor is of course a very good guy but he is a bit too good I guess like he's so holy than holier than thou in a way but Gumork is evil in that sort of purely malicious I want to bring bring just terror and doesn't have the refined evil of Gristlebrand so it's a difficult choice I want to say Gumork but I think the honest answer is actually uh, Falcor you you have to agree that Gristlebrand has a really good taste he likes to draw seven cards he is what every legacy player should aspire to do. And uh, that, guys, is all we have for this week. If you think it was a good podcast, if you enjoyed yourself, uh, please help us grow by telling a friend of yours. And if you want to reach out to us, a great way is to join our Discord server. You can find the link in the episode description. You can also hit us up on Twitter at STHLMLegacy. We are also personally present on social media. Robin, where can our listeners find you they can found, find me on uh, reddit under the name jackabo and also on the ancient forum of the source under the same username yeah you can find me on twitter at monolith mtg and i am also on twitter as disco drogo and that concludes the 23rd episode of stockholm legacy report thank you robin svensson and christopher wikstrom the great frenes has written our music you could check them out on spotify until next time do find us drinking deep in borås